the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. And now back to Lifeline with Craig Roberts. Our guest today is Professor of Otolaryngology at the New York Eye and Ear Infirmary of Mount Sinai Hospital and also a celebrated author. Her latest of three books, Dr. Kaufman's Acid Reflux Diet. We're talking about this topic that impacts millions of American lives. And, of course, the typical response to a diagnosis, Dr. Kaufman, of acid reflux by many physicians today is to do what my doctor did, and that is write out a script and say, here, in my case, uh, 20 milligrams of uh, protonics a day, and uh, call me in a month and let me know how you're doing. Uh, That would suggest, I would imagine in my own mind, that it's like to say somebody who's constantly take an aspirin for a headache, that that somehow is because they have a aspirin deficiency in their body. Uh, is this necessarily a case of my, of my stomach, in my case, uh, producing more acid than it should on its own? Or does a lot of this really have to do with lifestyle and diet? In other words, is this really manageable outside of taking medication? Not only is it manageable without a medication, there now is increasing evidence that the medicines that we thought were going to be so miraculous for reflux are not so miraculous. Um, right now, the, the, the group of, of medications called proton pump inhibitors, they include uh, protonics and Nexium, Dexalent, uh, Prevacid, uh, what have I left, Nexium. All of these medicines, they're, they're relatively powerful acid suppressants. But even if you take them, you still will make acid. So the best acid suppressant medicine doesn't knock out all the acid. That's the first thing. The second thing is we've now seen a relationship with these group, PPIs, proton pump inhibitors they're called, with um, heart disease, kidney disease, bone disease, and most recently a question about uh, Alzheimer's. But actually, the most compelling argument against the use, and by the way, you were on the right way. If you're going to be on these kind of medicines, it should be in terms of weeks, not in terms of years. Um, The most compelling evidence against long-term use, and many doctors say, listen, just, you know, take your pills and you can eat what you want. And the reality is that's not true. In 2014, there was a Danish national study of 10,000 people and they looked at these people and found that people who took the pills for several years had a, listen to this now, an increased, not a decreased risk, an increased risk of developing reflux-caused esophageal cancer. So what that says to me is that these pills knock down the symptoms but don't necessarily control the disease. And so that gets to root cause, root cause. Let's just say you get invited to a dinner party on a Saturday night, 8.30. And from 8.30 to 9.30, you have a glass of wine, perhaps, or maybe you don't. You have hors d'oeuvres. And then you sit down to a rich meal, uh, uh, two, three courses, a chocolate dessert, and a pushback from the table at 11 o'clock or even midnight. 
Um, all the people at that dinner party are going to have reflux that night. You can't have a big, huge meal at that hour and not reflux all night. And so all of the risk factors, if you ask me what are the most important sort of uh, defenses that we can all apply, not eating after 8 o'clock at night, not overeating, making sure you have a reasonable diet, meaning you eat breakfast, you eat snacks, you eat lunch, you get most of your calories before 5 o'clock so you don't have to have a major refuel when you get home from work late. And then uh, Soda Pop, my first book's called Dropping Acid, and it's not called Dropping Acid for no reason. In 1973, following an outbreak of food poisoning, the FDA said you have to have a little bit of acid in everything in a bottle or a can to kill bacteria. Unfortunately, uh, people who manufacture these have decided that lots of acid must be good if a little acid kills bacteria. So we now have basically everything in a bottle or a can with the same acidity as stomach acid. I know that's hard to believe. So cutting, all, cutting away from not only you know a, a soda pop, but also other uh, beverages that are bottled, even things that look, look healthy like energy drinks and fruit juices have acid added. And then not too high fat. And so the, the bottom line is lean, clean, green, and alkaline. And alkaline or alkaline means um, not too much acid in the diet. By the way, I'm not a big fan of apple cider vinegar for reflux. Yeah, I, I've heard that reported as a, as a uh, one method of dealing with it. I, I never quite bought into that. I mean, for me, if I was really desperate, a little glass of milk seems to do the trick. Yes, milk is al- alkaline, by the way, for people who don't know. Um, alkaline is the opposite of acid. So if you take something that's alkaline and something that's acidic, it gets neutralized. And so um, of all the things out there, there's something called alkaline water. And indeed, a water will percolate through the ground and become anti-acid or alkaline. So alkaline water is really quite good for refluxers. And many people with reflux will tell how when they started drinking alkaline water, it helped their reflux quite a bit. So there is a degree to which trying to balance the pH levels does make sense. But as you're suggesting too, doctor, just in terms of of the the schedule and manner in which we eat, uh, not encouraging your stomach to go into high production of acid because it's just finished a huge meal and is now going to be working on breaking that down over the next several hours as we're sleeping is probably one of the smartest ways to start. Well, you know, let's just talk about what happens when you lie down. If your stomach's full, you lose gravity, right? Stuff doesn't run uphill as well as it runs through a flat canal. So you lose gravity. You lose the benefit of being upright. The second thing is if you, let's just pretend you're a little overweight. When you lie down, the weight of your abdomen, of your belly, let's just say you've got a beer belly, the weight of that belly is now pushing on your stomach. And for people who are really overweight, um, it doesn't really even matter whether they eat, they're going to be pushing on their stomach all night, even with a little bit of acid, it's coming up. So being overweight certainly is a factor in eating um, and lying down. And, and by the way, it's not just, uh, it's a, let's just say, you know, you had a busy day at work, you finished late, you went and, went and exercised at the gym, you got home, you didn't really have time for lunch, you're starving. Um, now what happens is that you're having a, the biggest meal of the day at 8.30. 
So that, I've said it twice, and so I'll, I'll make it the last time. That's probably the greatest risk factor there is for silent reflux. So that gets to the question of what do you do? What I recommend for people, and by the way, you asked an important question that I never answered. How do you know if you have reflux? There's something called the Reflux Symptom Index, which is a quiz. It's on my website. It's in every one of my books. It takes about a minute to fill it out. You circle uh, nine items from zero to five. And if your score is 15 or more on the Reflux Index, then you have a 90% chance of having reflux. So you can look at those symptoms and fill out those uh, circles and see if you've got uh, likely to have reflux. By the way, I did take the test, and I came in at a 27. So. Yeah, yeah, sir, that's 27. Yeah. That. yeah, looking at all the symptoms based on what was happening at the time I was diagnosed a year and a half ago, uh, I said, okay, well, yeah, here we are, 27. I guess we answered that question. Hey, if you've just joined us, Dr. Jamie Kaufman is with us today. We're dealing with an issue that, quite frankly, millions of Americans are facing, myself included, and that is acid reflux. And as we're learning, the pill prescription might seem to be an easy way out, but it's not the best way out. And some of this research, including the Danish study to which Dr. Kaufman just referred to a moment ago, is in fact beginning to demonstrate that taking of medications to deal with acid reflux might in fact be exacerbating the problem and making the circumstances even worse. So what do we do? Certainly we know acid production is necessary as fashion in which the body, the stomach, breaks down foods and processes foods for energy and calories that you need and all of that. But yet, our diets today, increased use of preservatives that are in there, as Dr. Coffin mentions, a high degree of acidity as a preservative in so many foods today. And when you add to that eating late, eating too much, it just becomes a recipe for disaster. All right, speaking of recipes, so then as we've understood what some of the causes are, and we know what the general medical community has done to try to address it, simply give you a pill, what's the better way out? If that's is needed, then how do we manage it better? And how do we deal with this matter of lifestyle and diet? We're going to get to that part of the conversation. Our discussion today with Dr. Jamie Kaufman, a look at Acid Reflux Diet, a new book, by the way, a newly published, available at bookstores throughout the Bay Area, as well as through the usual suspects, Amazon.com. And you can also get it through Dr. Kaufman's website, voiceinstituteofnewyork.com. That's Voice like voice, all voice institute of New York.com. We'll take a brief time out, come back to more remarks and insights as Lifeline continues. And now back to Lifeline with Craig Roberts. She is professor of otolaryngology at the New York Eye and Ear Infirmary of Mount Sinai Hospital and also the author of a number of best-selling books, including the latest, Dr. Kaufman's Acid Reflux Diet. We're talking about this topic of acid reflux, what it is, how to address it. So far, the medical community largely, and I don't wish this to be a blanket accusation, but largely the idea of writing a prescription, sending you home with some medication seems to be the way we've addressed it. 
But as Dr. Kaufman is pointing out, that really is addressing a symptom. It's not getting to the root causes, such as eating too late, eating too much, uh, eating, uh, quite frankly, uh, the wrong kind of diet. And toward that end, let's get into some of the, the key points here, if you can, Dr. Kaufman. Uh, the book, by the way, I'll mention for listeners, has an exhausted list of complete entrees and recipes toward the back, as we mentioned, over 111 new recipes. But as we talk about some of the major categories, Dr. Kaufman, to avoid, which ones are sort of the worst when it comes to being contributory to acid reflux? Well, there are different mechanisms of reflux. So fat makes the uh, uh, for reflux high-fat meals. Um, acid makes for reflux um, caffeine and nicotine, they make uh, the valves relax and make for reflux. And uh, so if you, if you ask me what I recommend, if let's just say you take the quiz and you say, gee, I think I have silent reflux or it's, it's a real possibility. What I recommend is a two-week reflux detox. Um, it's not easy. The only fruit you can have is melons and bananas. The only meat you can have is poultry or fish. I consider fish like meat. Um, no condiments, uh, only egg whites. Um, nothing out of a bottle or a can except water or one cup of coffee a day uh, or tea. Uh, no alcohol. If you drink alcohol, it must be zero. And then the kitchen must close by 7 o'clock, assuming you go to bed at 11. So that it's a strict two-week detox. And usually what happens is in two weeks, people go, whoa, my cough is stuck, whoa, my voice has been okay, or my throat clearing is better, or this lump in the throat doesn't feel so uh, worrisome and annoying. So at the end of two weeks, people then say, okay, what do I do now? The detox is listed in all the books, and it's easily found, this detox diet. And it's a list of things you can eat rather than can't eat. By the way, nothing fried, and the only uh, of the fats that we permit, no butter, is olive oil. So it's pretty, pretty tight. And if you really think about it, what it is is lean, clean, green, and alkaline. Lean, uh, there's no red meat or very little red meat thereafter, after the detox phase. You shouldn't be having red meat every day. Um, Clean is a very important concept. If you have an energy bar that you love and you turn it over to read the ingredients and it has 16 unpronounceable chemicals on the back, um, presume that it's poison and you should try and find a new one that's much more natural and has fewer chemicals. I mean, many, many of the manufacturers are beginning to start taking out some of these chemicals and these preservatives. They're not good for you. And so that gets uh, to, to, to green. We know what green means. Green means organic, which is another way of clean. And also, of course, uh, 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 greens are good for you. So you start having things like this morning I had a three-egg omelet with one yolk and, and lox smoked salmon. And then uh, for lunch we got uh, roasted chicken with uh, vegetables and potatoes. For a snack I had a Fuji apple um, and uh, then an avocado. And for dinner, I had uh, a, a sushi. So, you know, I'm not saying you should eat like that every day, but it does represent a paradigm shift compared to, um, you know, two cheeseburgers, fries, and a Coke. And as you're suggesting here, uh, 
there are a lot of foods that are really triggers, essentially, that the stomach says, okay, I'm going to have a lot of work to do here. There's much more that has to be, or something that's more difficult to digest, like red meats, and so therefore, it's stimulating additional acid reproduction. Is that accurate? Well, it stays in the stomach a long time, red meat, and uh, and, and by the way, you brought up a very important word, the word trigger. Um, you've implied that it makes more acid. I'm not sure whether it makes more acid, but it makes reflux of the acid that's in the stomach come up. And so among the big triggers, for some people, by the way, none of them, uh, these things that I'm going to mention are for everyone. Um, Chocolate is a big trigger food for some people, particularly uh, milk chocolate. Um, Alcohol is a big trigger. Uh, Onions, garlic, tomatoes, peppers. Um, nuts, particularly macadamia nuts and cashews, the safest of the nuts for the refluxer are, are uh, um, uh, pistachios and almonds. And um, uh, uh, too much caffeine, there's probably nothing wrong with a cup of coffee for most people or two or even three. But if you're drinking a pot of coffee before noon, you'd probably have reflux regardless of whether coffee is an actual trigger food. It's the caffeine. So, you know, the question is, what do people do? And in many cases, they, they double down on their mistakes. And so I think what starts to happen, the reason I've done what I've done, the reason my work um, is, uh, I believe, is important, is it it addresses the basic question of what does represent healthy eating? What do we know today? And most importantly, I I think, as you've underscored both in our conversation today and throughout the book, simply taking a medication and thinking we can take this one little tiny pill a day and eat whatever we want whenever we want is is largely really been a a wives tale hasn't it it's dead wrong in fact i mean uh, we at least in my practice virtually every single patient who comes to me is already on the medicine so we know that there are millions of people who even on the medicine are suffering. Uh, by the way, I should mention that it's not, it never should have been allowed to have these kind of medicines over the counter, and here's why. Uh, the medicine, when you buy it, it says take it for two weeks. Well, what happens after two weeks is people stop cold turkey. And about half of people, when they stop cold turkey, then that's when you get this hyperacidity. That's when you have this, what we call rebound hyperacidity. So what happens is they were doing sort of okay for two weeks, and they quit, and they get terrible symptoms. And then what do they do is they they tough it out for a little while, and the next thing, they're back on the medicine for two more weeks. And so although this is good for drug sales, and for the, for, for the manufacturers, it's not so good for people who do it. So this question about medication, I should point out that there is another class of medicine that, that is safer and that can be taken on an as-needed basis. And although it's a medical term, they're called H2 antagonists. And the three that are available are Zantac, Tagamet, and Pepsid. And those three are much safer over the long haul. They can be taken, gee, I'm having some symptoms and I'm going to take these for a few days or a week and even longer. And in fact, we use them in pregnancy. Interesting. At the end of the day, then, doctors, you're suggesting that the, the, the real way to address this issue is by a change in lifestyle and diet. And that then raises, I think, uh, the, the final important question for everyone eavesdropping on our conversation, and that is, of your patients, 
that move toward the healthier lifestyle and the the more friendly diet, how many are able to get completely off of any sort of uh, of the proton pump inhibitors and be able to remain essentially acid free in terms of its impact? The vast majority, when patients come to me, they're highly motivated. People who have, you know, terrible problems, breathing, people who have had multiple sinus surgeries, people who are miserable. Um, those people um, who are willing to stick with the program, what I tell them is, listen, you're going to be under my care for a year. Um, you're going to go on medicine to start out with varieties of different types of medicine, not just acid suppressants, by the way. And the goal is to be medicine-free and asymptomatic and essentially healthy without any reflux a year from now. And that means that they will have, in many cases, lost weight. In many cases, their cholesterols are better, their diabetes is under control. So we're talking about basically a big, 50, you know, like a 50,000-mile tune-up. In my experience, 90% uh, of our patients I get substantial improvement, and the majority get well. Wow. That's a pretty remarkable uh, response rate, and, and one that I think ought to give encouragement to all of us. The book is called Dr. Kaufman's Acid Reflux Diet. It includes 111 all-new recipes, including vegan and gluten-free, and it's available at bookstores throughout the Bay Area. You can also order the book online through Dr. Kaufman's website, voiceinstituteofnewyork.com. That's Voice Institute of New York. Dot com. And our thanks to best-selling author and physician, Dr. Jamie Kaufman, for being with us on this segment of Lifeline. And now back to Lifeline with Craig Roberts. You go to the mall sometimes or maybe shopping, you watch a parent not parenting and the child's running amok throughout the stores, pulling things off the shelves, the whole bit, and you think to yourself, how come somebody doesn't teach that parent how to parent or hold them responsible for their child? There ought to be a law. Well, apparently in Dallas there is one, though it has nothing to do with encouraging parents to parent. In fact, it seemingly has just the opposite effect. You might have heard of this case of a parent whose daughter was engaged in, at the age of 12, no surprise there, engaged in some inappropriate chatting on the cell phone. Happens all the time, right? So dad did what most thinking, caring parents would do, and that is he said to his daughter, taught you not to talk like that. I'm taking your cell phone away. The police were called... And the back end of the story is that he ended up spending a night in jail, had to pay $1,500 in bail, and it went to a jury trial. The father being accused of stealing his daughter's telephone. I guess I would, I would be in a lot of trouble as a parent, because in my house it would be, you live underneath my roof, I pay for your bills, and until the age of majority, my rules go. And if you don't behave appropriately, the cell phone will be taken away. Can anybody tell me right now listening that's over the age of 18 who doesn't remember a time when mom or dad said when you were 16 or something years old, you acted up, you misbehaved, you didn't do your chores, whatever, and the car keys were taken away from you for the weekend? Happened to me a bunch of times. I guess I should have called the police on my dad and said, hey, he stole my car. 
Let's try to see if we can't make sense out of what seems to make no sense at all. Dr. Greg Jans joins us. He's a best-selling author of more than 25 books. He is founder of the Center for Counseling and Health Resources and the author of a new book that probably should be in the hands of every parent that has a child that's 18 or younger. It's called Hooked, The Pitfalls of Media, Technology, and Social Marketing. And Dr. Jantz, thanks so much for making some time out of your busy schedule to join us tonight. Is there something about this story I'm missing? I mean, really, this man was arrested for taking his daughter's cell phone because because she was texting somebody inappropriately. There's got to be a backstory. Please tell. Oh, me. there's got to be. But what is it? It's it's uh, unbelievable, isn't it? Just simply unbelievable. And uh, the role of there's several things that are confused here is uh, we've really uh, probably uncovered quite the conflict that was going on prior to taking the cell phone away. Something else was going on. And the other piece is uh, the role of technology with our young people and what's happening. Well, let's talk about a couple of things. First, there's a bit of background, and this will immediately, I think, for most parents listening, say, aha, uh, the, the, the parents of this child are separated. Maybe they were never married. From what I've read, it doesn't appear as if there was ever any wedlock involved. So the daughter lives with mom but comes and visits dad. It was the daughter who had the telephone given to her by mom. Dad took it away when he saw that she was engaged in some inappropriate texting. And so part of this just seems to be a a bit of a, a battle between parents. It is. And, of course, the kids are caught in the middle of it. Um... And we know, too, that uh, there could be some different values as it relates to what's acceptable, even in in text messaging. And uh, is that really private information? If you supply the cell phone and you have a kid who's under 18 and they're texting, is that private information? Let's talk what's about your, this because I, I've, I've seen I've seen several postings on the web that seem to suggest that there's more than one individual out there that seems to be of the opinion that you know this child has her her rights and after all it's an invasion of privacy this that and the other thing and I'm thinking to myself really in in 2016 knowing the kind of dangers that lurk out there on the internet behind uh, social media sites everything from uh, you know pedophiles to, uh, well, you just about name it, uh, even these days we're seeing kids kidnapped and, and, and being brought into the sex trade as sex slaves. What what thinking logical parent would say, oh, yeah, my daughter at the age of 12 has a quote-unquote, I mean, if you want to help give her a little sense of privacy in terms of, you know, don't don't just walk through the bedroom door without knocking first. That I get. But a child that has a right to privacy on an electronic device under the age of 18, I, what is it that I'm missing here? Well, you know, we're back to um, really are we working on protecting our kids? Um, you know, what we do in our home, and I have two boys, is, um, you know, we know passwords. You share your password, and um, the phone or the smart device goes uh, actually in a charger in mom and dad's closet at a certain time in the evening or you don't have it the next day. Uh, we talk about things that are, um, you know, downloading an apps. We make it a, an open discussion. We know that the average age to exposure to pornography on the Internet now is, is age 10, 10 years old. 
so we're seeing boys 14, 15, 16 really have developed what fits more in the category of sexual addiction. I just read a story, Dr. Chance, probably over the weekend, about a mother who had her young son, a 10-year-old boy, had his Facebook account linked to her. So anytime there was a like or a message sent, she saw what was being communicated. Yeah. To discover that he was suddenly communicating with a 30-year-old man who wanted to make arrangements to meet the boy. There was yeah. apparently some graphic exchange of conversation. The mother happened to see this, immediately intervened, turned the device over to police, who then, posing as this perp, uh, actually set up a meeting. The guy showed up and he got arrested. I mean, those kinds of dangers. Are there parents that are so naive out there that they don't realize that if they don't control these devices pretty strictly, like in the case of this father here, that the kind of risk that they are exposing their children to is the equivalent of saying, hey, let me give you 10 bucks and send you into the seediest part of town for the evening and, you know, come home by 10. Right, right. Well, you know, here's the thing. Technology, and if you have kids that have been born in the 90s, they're part of the I generation. It's the first tech, uh, generation to be tethered to technology. And there's an underground world, and they're faster and smarter than we are. And every day there's a new app, and kids move in herds. You know, Facebook is old news. We're off to uh, other things. And um, now I can buy an app and put it on my smartphone that looks like a calculator, but it's really a disguised communication tool. Um, we have instant live uh, videoing now. And there's some apps that, like this that the parents ought to really be concerned about. So we've got to involve ourselves in the lives of our kids uh, really from a protection point of view. And again, as, as we're suggesting, this is not necessarily because you're trying to snoop on them or, you know, you're, you're trying to set up an environment where you demonstrate out the gate that you don't trust them. But the level of vulnerability out there is is so incredible. In fact, we'll, we'll pose this question for Dr. Jans and have an answer when we come back after a timeout. When I grew up, granted that was back when the Stone Age was here and there was, you know, no electric light or running water yet, uh, my father insisted that if I was going out for an evening or hanging out with neighborhood kids after a certain time of the day, he wanted to know where I was going to be, what parent was at that home, a telephone number to call in case of an emergency, and he insisted upon knowing the parents of the children that I associated with. He said it was just good parenting. That was just to protect me from what might be lurking in the neighborhood. Imagine today where with the Internet, it's the whole planet that we need to be concerned about. So what of that? We'll talk about that when we come back to more of the conversation. Do you believe that your child's so-called right to privacy ought to trump your responsibility to protect your son or daughter? If you were the parent in this Dallas case, 12-year-old daughter inappropriately texting with someone, broken the rules, you say, okay, you break the rules, I'm taking the cell phone away. Is that an appropriate parental response? What about the city of Dallas? Really? They don't have enough crime problems down there that they go and arrest this guy and put him in the hooskow overnight? This ends up going to a jury trial all over the question of the father being charged with stealing his daughter's cell phone because he was disciplining her for inappropriate behavior in texting 
on said cell phone? I mean, at, at what point do our child's rights end and our responsibility as parents begin? Dr. Greg Jantz, he is best-selling author and founder of the Center for Counseling and Health Resources. We're talking about the shocking case out of Dallas. Fortunately, the judge said, there's no evidence here. Get this thing out of my courtroom. But it, it, it begs the question, should parents not take full responsibility for parenting their children? And since when should the police department, the government, get involved in a case like this? A brief time out, back with more as Lifeline continues. And now back to Lifeline with Craig Roberts. So split parents here, daughter primarily lives with mom, visiting dad. Dad sees daughter engaged in some inappropriate texting. Rules of the house are you can't behave like that. Says the daughter, I'm confiscating confiscating your telephone. The 12-year-old pulls a typical 12-year-old conniption fit, goes tattling to mommy, who apparently decides this is a great way to get back at daddy, and then through the police demands that the telephone be returned, otherwise it's considered stolen property. Now, that's that's the lay of the land. What's your reaction? Let's go to San Jose and say good evening to Elaine. Elaine, come on in with your comment or question for Dr. Greg Jans on this topic. Good evening. Um, yes, I, it's more of a question comment type thing. I was listening to Kevin uh, Lehman, Dr. Kevin Lehman, oh, yes. psychologist, uh-huh. and he was making the point that uh, it, it, in this very exact uh, topic of cell phones, that parents don't realize that the phone belongs to them because they are the one that paid for it. So therefore, if a child abuses the uh, rules and guidelines of the telephone, the, the cell phone, then the parent has every right to take it away from the child. Now, in this particular case, I think because of the way our culture is going, we seem to get things confused as to what and who has a right. And you get the right lawyer out there, and they'll sue for the most ridiculous things, as in this case, I do believe. Um, and I'm just glad that the uh, judge threw it out. Um, but it, it, the fact that it got that far was kind of interesting to me. But I think you're right on when you say that it, uh, it was appears that the mom was trying to get back at her ex. Oh, yeah. Uh, I mean, that, that's, really- that, that, that's certainly, I think, a big uh, component here, Elaine. And the other thing that I find of, of, of concern, and Elaine kind of alludes to this, Dr. Jans, and that is the notion that, you know, we're in a day and an age when some of the child psychologists out there say, now, don't don't spank or paddle a child because that's considered uh-huh. to be abusive. So right. then what tools are left to a parent to try and discipline a child in an appropriate fashion if you if if taking away their privilege? is abusive and spanking them is considered child abuse and you can't take away the cell phone because now you're stealing property why do we call them children then why don't we just say that they're you know miniature adults that's right well good point you know and i think too another bigger picture is um what how do we handle a whole issue of technology with our parenting we know that um uh, there's some real dangers right now with kids and technology, and how do we monitor this? What do we do? Um, and how do we 
set up technology rules for our family and our household and what's our values there? Um, how do we use it for good? So these are all important questions. You have a broken uh, family. Uh, this gets even more complicated because one parent may uh, be more involved than the other in uh, the whole technology realm. And so we, we send a lot of mis- messages. Are parents uh, underplaying that- the, the danger here? I alluded before the break to the notion that my father insisted on knowing who my playmates were, who their parents were. And by the way, if you're going to be over at so-and-so's house, I want a telephone number. I mean, was that overprotective for that era? I'm talking 40 years ago. And if that was overprotective for them, considering what's lurking on the other side of a cell phone or the Internet these days, my goodness. That's right. So what we do know is that uh, that was probably not overprotective. That showed love and care and protection. And right now there's a whole other level, of invisible level of communication, connection uh, that's happening via uh, the Internet and online activity that parents uh, probably, for the most part, I'm always amazed how many parents really um, aren't, aren't privy to how much is actually going on. You know, how many kids have received uh, sex texting? How many kids have had bully behavior online? So I I just want to open up the awareness. I want to keep this so kids don't feel ashamed and they can talk about it. And, you know, developmentally, um, uh, developmental stages, the research has shown us that overstimulating the brain uh, with nonstop high-intensity blue screen activity um, really over time uh, can create what we call a craving brain. That brain wants more and more stimuli. We know boys are more prone to this. And it can really set you up to have an addictive type brain and craving more and more. So in addition to some of the obvious things like uh, pedophiles trying to make connection with children, things of this sort, uh, there, there's this whole layer of, of exposing them. And, and I guess it's true then that there, there, there are levels of maturity which our children need to be prepared to what they're exposed to. That isn't to say that eventually they're not going to run into this. I mean, uh, how many of us listening right now have innocently sat down to the computer and, and, and Googled a, a cooking recipe and all of a sudden, my goodness, got hit with porn? Jarella's raising his hand. It happens all okay. the time. A- yeah. And yet to understand, like this one recent uh, junior high school, half of the student body got disciplined because they were swapping uh, naked photos of each other. Yeah, exactly. So it, it, yep. it, is, it is a slippery soap. And, and does it say to parents like Elaine and others out there, uh, you need to take time to get educated and realize that there's a lot more going on and capable of taking place in the digital realm than most of us are really uh, aware of? There's a lot more going on, isn't there, than what we're aware of. Uh, we do something called a digital dinner. One night a week, it's okay to talk about anything related to technology. The kids can take charge, and we sit there and learn about things that they know about so that it helps us. <laughs> so, and we also want to promote to have one day of technology detox where you just set it all away and down, and you're not involved with it for a day. and You, you learn how to do a board game. That's a board game, not a boring game. Uh, you begin to do things that you wouldn't normally have done. You're not talking like people actually sitting and conversing with each other face-to-face, are you? Well, I, I knew that I had a problem in my home some time ago, and my two boys were at the dinner table texting back and forth under the table. 
to each other. <laughs> uh, we sure appreciate the time tonight. Thank you also, Elaine, for your input. And uh, let me mention, by the way, that Dr. Jantz's book, Hooked, the Pitfalls of Media, Technology, and Social Marketing, um, is uh, available. And uh, can you get it through your website as well, Dr. Jantz? Visit us at aplaceofhope.com, yes. Excellent. Good good resource for more information and, of course, to get a copy of the book. And, again, you know, this this is a topic that I realize for any of us over the age of 20, uh, uh, we're, we're still playing catch-up. And what comes naturally to the kids is a big learning curve for all of us. But be aware of the pitfalls and the dangers that are out there. This case certainly out of Dallas is at the extreme and yet demonstrative of the fact that this parent was simply doing their job to protect their daughter because uncontrolled, unfettered, uh, this can be a very dangerous um, manipulative tool in the hands of the wrong people and the kind of stuff that your kids can be exposed to can be very dangerous. I'm not suggesting that it's not great technology. We all enjoy it. Life has gotten a lot easier at many levels, a lot more complicated at many others, but uh, it needs to be a case where parent, you need to be actively engaged and aware. And I like what Dr. Jan suggests. How about a disconnect it, turn it off evening for the entire family? Dad's not responding to emails from work. Mom is not texting, you know, a friend down the street who wants a copy of a recipe or trying to coordinate, you know, the, 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 the you know, who's taking who the, to soccer practice next Saturday. The kids are not texting each other, sitting right across the table from each other and texting each other. Can you believe it? How about just good old-fashioned face-to-face, eyeball-to-eyeball conversation? Remember how that goes? You say something and I listen, then I say something when you listen and then we repeat. Fascinating thought, isn't it? wonder how that goes. All right. Thanks so much to Dr. Greg Jantz. Again, the book, Hooked, the Pitfalls of Media, Technology, and Social Marketing. You can get it on his website at aplaceofhope.com. That's aplaceofhope.com. Well, that's going to do it for this edition of Lifeline. Thanks so much for being with us. And if there was anything you heard on today's show that you'd like to hear again or share with a friend, grab a copy of the Lifeline podcast. Simply log on to kfax.com. That's kfax.com for the Lifeline podcast. Our producer is Wanda Sanchez. I'm Craig Roberts. Till next time round, remember, just don't keep the faith. Get out there and share it and make it a great evening. So long. Opinions expressed in the preceding program do not necessarily represent the views of the ownership, staff, or management of KFAX. Copyright Salem Communications, all rights reserved. Three-star general Michael J. Flynn, head of the Pentagon Intelligence Agency, knew all the government's dirty secrets. He was one of the most respected generals in the military. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He understood its funding. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. The explosive new documentary, Flynn, deliver the truth, whatever the cost, and covers the facts behind this scandal. Flynn told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. I find out the worst enemy that I'm going to face in my life is right here in America. They took my assessment and they wanted me to change it. I was like, I'm not changing it. They had to get rid of Flynn. 
with in-depth interviews, archival footage, and never-before-seen personal records of the man behind the headlines. I just felt like I was drowning. Flynn, deliver the truth, whatever the cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to salemnow.com, salemnow.com.